Today on Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet, album edition, The Rising. Everybody, you're listening to Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet, the only podcast where we talked about every single one of Bruce Springsteen's songs, for the most part, in alphabetical order. Now we're going back through the albums, and we're on The Rising. I'm J.B. Clark. I'm joined, as always, by Rob Carmack. Rob, what's up? Dream of life. <laughs> Nothing much. How's it going with you? <laughs> Dude, good. I've been listening to this record, and I put it on this morning, and Lonesome Day came on, and I was like, hell yeah, this record bops. It does. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm not going to cry this time. I'm not feeling anything yet. Awesome. And then I like as soon as it got into the fire, I was like, I'm going to cry. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. I, I had a appointment. I'm, I'm going to take a page out of your book and just talk about my therapy from earlier today. I, I had an appointment with my therapist earlier today. And uh, we talked about this album. She, she's never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. It was it was my first session with her. Um, I, cool. I, I, oh, and I, you I already just, got into the rising. So. Well, she she specifically asked me. She said, "Do you like music?" And I was like, "Well, yeah." <laughs> like that's kind of the only way I know how to talk to people. In and and so I got into like so I co-host this podcast, and most of the time when I talk to people about Bruce Springsteen who aren't my co-host on this podcast. Uh, their eyes glaze over in about 90 seconds. So yeah. I won't tax you with that. She was like, no, no, no. Like, it's interesting. So she wanted to know, like, what what types of music has, have been speaking to me. And I said, it's funny you mentioned because I've been listening to this album, The Rising, today, with which she is not familiar. And mm. I said, this album is deeply prescient right now. Like, it, it, I could not, I cannot even begin to tell you how profoundly this album has been striking chords with me all week. And so she said she's going to go and listen to it. And next week in our session, we're going to talk about it. So I'm paying Ooh. somebody else to also talk to me about the rest. <laughs> and that's what I'm talking about, dude. <laughs> I'm just assembling as many people who can who surround me and just talk about the rising as much as possible. So anyway, yeah, we're talking about the rising today, JB, the album. Yeah. This album was released on July the 30th, 2002 on Columbia Records. So it's almost uh, 18 years ago, like to the day that yeah, this man. album came out. Uh, this is Bruce's 12th studio album on Columbia Records. And uh, we'll talk about, like, there's so much deep mythology surrounding this album. So first of all, let's just talk about 2002. So if you were buying music in the year 2002, JB, let me let me just ask you. I, you, I, I realize I, I, I usually am the one who brings this list. I, just out of curiosity, do you happen to, off the top of your head to know what your favorite albums from 2002 were? It's okay if you don't, because I, oh, I would not have known man. if I hadn't been, like, spending time on this. I... I can't really think of any right now. I'm, I'm going to say the I, name of an album, and you're going to tell me it's one of your favorite albums ever. Okay. The One of the other albums that came out in 2002 was a little album called Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by William. Mm, mm, and, nope, I lost it. Never mind. But yes, <laughs> I love Yankee Foxtrot Hotel. Yes, absolutely. So here, here's, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you a quick list of, of albums that came out in 2002. And feel free to stop me if any just particularly strike you. I'm just going to run down the list. So you, you've got Under Rug Swept by Alanis Morissette. Uh, the Eminem Show by Eminem, which, by the way, was the best-selling album of 2002, which tells you there is no justice that the Eminem Show outsold The Rising by Bruce Springsteen. Uh, yeah. Whatever. Uh, Busted Stuff by Dave Matthews Band. Home by Dixie Chicks, for the, the artist formerly known as Dixie Chicks, now just known as The Chicks. Chicks. Because that's... I, I never realized like how problematic both of the words in their name were <laughs> until yeah. they dropped one of them. So yeah. anyway, uh, yeah. So now we got Home by Dixie Chicks. Uh, Nellyville by Nelly, Let Go by Avril Lavigne, Britney by Britney Spears, Laundry Service by Shakira. Here's here's a here's an all time favorite, Silver Side Up by Nickelback. 
Oh, dude, I played that record so much, though. One of the only artists to outsell Donald Trump in the BOK Center in Tulsa. <laughs> uh, let's see. Not, I'm, that's, that's just a joke. There are several artists. There are many, many artists who have outsold many. Donald Trump in the BOK Center. So, A New Way Home by Celine Dion, 8701 by Usher, Misunderstood by Pink. I mentioned Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Uh, Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots by Flaming Lips. That's a really Ooh, good We album. talked about that one last week or we, a couple we weeks ago. That's, a, that's arguably the last truly like great flaming lips record uh here, here's one you, you may be like there were no yeah. great flaming flaming lips records why am i having a hard time saying saying flaming lips records it's hard flaming to lips records flaming lips records anyway right uh kill the moonlight by spoon yes under I construction by missy elliott uh two different albums by tom waits alice and blood money i love alice yeah that's a great record that's my uh, first one i listened to by him oh that's a good one um yeah. sea change by beck Oh, by Damien Rice. Damien Rice? Mm-hmm. What about Damien Rice? Oh, oh, by Damien Rice. The record. Um... Oh, I thought you were saying like, oh, by Damien Rice. I'm like, no, but Sea Change by Beck. Not by, by Beck. No. Oh, oh, by Damien Rice. Oh, by Damien Oh. Uh, More Than You Think You Are by Matchbox 20. Oh, the, yeah. The Last DJ by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Not their best work, but it's an album. Uh, Red Letter Days by The Wallflowers, Come Away With Me by Nora Jones. That's a big Ooh, one. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Justified by Justin Timberlake. Oh, I didn't even get that one on my list. Uh, Gutter Flower by Goo Goo Dolls. Castaways that's, and Cutouts by The December. That's the one. That what? That, that's the Goo Goo Dolls record. Gutter Flower? Yeah. It's pretty good. I like Dizzy Up the Girl. Oh, yeah, that one's good, too. Yeah. Uh, I said ca- Castaways and Cutouts by The December. Is that, that, is that The December's first album? No. No, there, there, there was one before that. I think I don't remember. Uh, Riot Act by Pearl Jam. My Rides Here by Warren Zevon, as covered by Bruce Springsteen. Uh, Heathen by David Bowie. Waiting for My Rocket to Come by Jason Mraz. That has not aged well. And uh, finally, <laughs> finally, JB, Country Was by the Avett Brothers, which was their first official studio album. Oh yeah. So Avett Brothers been around eighteen years. So yeah, that's uh, not. I mean, maybe not the best year for for music in general. In fact, I, I looked up, I, I went digging and found an article in Pitchfork magazine from 2002, and the opening sentence from that article, from basically like the 2002 year in review, was, "In 2001, we told you that there are no bad years for music. We were mistaken." <laughs> so this oh, was, dude, Interpol had "Turn on the Bright Lights" and uh, Coldplay had "Rush of Blood to the Head." Well, hey. There you go. Counter argument. Counterpoint right there. So, yeah, I mean, there's some good stuff in here. I mean, it's it's nowhere near like a landmark year or anything like that. And for that reason, I'm kind of shocked that The Rising didn't do better. Like it it did very well. It, like I think it was the 34th highest selling album of the year, but it, it was not like a like a runaway juggernaut. It, right. um, it it did. It did great. It was definitely Bruce's best selling album since Born in the USA. But it, it wasn't like it didn't do as well as like the Eminem album or a lot of the other stuff that we mentioned here before. But anyway, it was it was seen as like a, a big, big comeback record. So here's kind of the basic facts surrounding this album, The Rising. So this is Bruce's first album produced by Brennan O'Brien. And, and he will continue working with Brennan O'Brien through the aughts, through the, the first decade of the century. Uh, in fact, we'll, we're going to talk a lot more about him next week when we talk about Devils and Dust, and specifically in the bonus episode. We're, I think we're going to do a special Brennan O'Brien bonus episode in the on the Patreon feed. So um, according to Brian Hyatt, Bruce was worried that he had, quote, lost his rock voice because his last rock album had been Lucky Town, which was 10 years earlier. 
So he had started doing some preliminary recording sessions in spring of 2001, and they've been doing a lot of reunion shows with the E Street Band in uh, 1999 and 2000. So he was feeling... He was already sort of leaning in the direction of going back into the studio and doing like a rock album and probably bringing yeah. the street band back into it. But they had um, Chuck Plotkin in the recording booth who had been working with Bruce since Born in the USA. So he, he's been he, – he was the the producer on most of Bruce's stuff in, in that, that period of time. So he had Plotkin in the, in the studio, and Bruce just felt like it wasn't working. Like, there there was just something that wasn't working, and Bruce was kind of blaming himself, and he was thinking, like, maybe maybe I don't have rock and roll – and I, maybe I can't make another rock record. Maybe like Ghost of Tom Joad and like the reunion tours. Like maybe maybe that's kind of where I live now. Um, but he felt like he was struggling. So he felt like he was struggling to create good rock music, and he needed a fresh voice in the room. So he calls Brendan O'Brien, based primarily on the fact that he really liked Brendan O'Brien's work with Pearl Jam, which is a yes. great reason to call a producer because Brendan O'Brien, with the exception of ten, I think at this point, I think Brendan O'Brien had produced every Pearl Jam record up to that point. Um, in fact, I think the majority of Pearl Jam's entire discography was produced by Brendan O'Brien, with a handful of exceptions, including their recent one, uh, Gigaton. Anyway, so uh, likewise, Brendan O'Brien had always said that whenever people would ask him if you could work with any artist in the world, who would it be? He always said, like, my only answer was Bruce Springsteen. So they were both really excited to work with each other, which I'm sure brought a lot of, like, fresh energy into the project. I'm sure Chet Plotkin was a little bit bummed, but, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's Bruce. you got to just kind of take, take, take him as they come. As as they're wont to say, so did um, you know that Pearl Jam did a ten? They released ten Redux, and Brennan, it's all Brennan O'Brien mixes. That's right, and you know what? I've never really listened to it because I'm it's such a good. purist as far as ten. I listened goes. to it last week. It's great, man. I need, I need. Have you been listening in preparation for all the the Brennan O'Brien discussion? Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. I've been a lot of lot of Mastodon. I didn't realize like how. <laughs> How much how much Mastodon Brendan O'Brien had, had done in his life. This so, will be a great excuse to go back and listen to a bunch of Mastodon. Uh, I'm probably not going to do that, but, you know, God will, or, you know, God be with you. But, but yeah, so so Brendan O'Brien is a great producer, and you could definitely make the argument that a lot of the stuff that is great about Pearl Jam's discography is, in a lot of ways, was shaped by the fact that Brendan O'Brien was kind of at the helm for, for a lot of that. So, um, so between Bruce's first and second meetings with Brendan O'Brien, so he meets with Brendan O'Brien in uh i think sometime mid 2001 and they have they make a plan to get together again soon and before their second meeting can happen uh 9-11 happens the the terrorist attacks on september 11th occur and and so of course which obviously like the entire earth has shifted at this point so at their next meeting bruce has now now there's a lot of new things kind of rolling around in his head in terms of like what do I need to say what do we need to do and so he sits down and he plays for Brendan O'Brien he plays Into the Fire and You're Missing which were songs that he had written um well we'll, we'll get into like when we get into the track by track but anyway so at that same meeting Brendan said to Bruce this is a quote this is how Brendan O'Brien tells the story he says here's how it works so imagine sitting down with Bruce Springsteen and saying here's how it works we yeah. go down to Georgia, which is where Brennan O'Brien records his uh, – where, where, where he works. He operates at a studio called Southern Tracks. So he says, we go down to Georgia. We do a couple of swings with the band, and everybody gets excited. And then you come back to New Jersey, and you start writing some more really good songs, and that's how you make a record. So again, Brennan O'Brien telling Bruce Springsteen, this is how you make a record. So Bruce is skeptical. This is how you make a rock and roll record. That's right. Which, I mean – I realize like how absurd that sounds having Brennan O'Brien say something like that to Bruce Springsteen. But again, Bruce is feeling a lot of like he, he doesn't have a lot of confidence in terms of like his rock and roll prowess. And Brennan O'Brien is coming off of almost a decade of producing best selling albums for Pearl Jam and Rage Against the Machine. So he's got like he actually does sort of have some credibility in this discussion. 
So, yeah. yes, so Bruce is, is skeptical, but Brennan's plan reportedly worked exactly like he said it would. So according to Brian Hyatt, Brennan had to really work to talk Bruce out of using synthesizers on the albums, specifically on songs like <laughs> Lonesome Day. Because, and again, this Thank is like... Thank goodness, man. Say what? Thank goodness. I know, like Brennan O'Brien kind of saved Bruce's early 2000 work, I think, because... He, he was, was just so into sense, man. He was. Well, and I mean, that's even how, like, Brennan tells the story. He says, like, he was kind of still in Born in the USA mode while we were writing. Yeah. Because like, the last time he made a major rock record, it was... Like, there was a lot of synth. So, not like lucky well, I mean, he likes bands. Like, you know, he loves Suicide. Like, they're just like a synth and bass band, you know? Like, he's into, he's into that kind of thing. Yeah. So, it makes it makes sense that it would come out in his music. But he didn't execute it as well. No, yeah, for sure. Well, and, I mean, I love that, like, Brendan O'Brien, who, again, like, he's, he's recorded some of the most important alt-rock music of, of the 90s. Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s and like to have this guy be like no man the sense are just not working like that's that's that is a thing that used to be something we would do and it's just not so yeah um so Brennan O'Brien say what you gotta cut it out you got yeah and and so he like O'Brien is quoted as saying I was this is a quote he says I was not as stoked about the synth stuff he Bruce had gotten a little dependent upon that stuff and we needed to take it out of that era and bring it into something a little more timeless, which is a way of saying like the synths sound like they, they were born in the 80s and we need for it to not sound that way. And so yeah. Bruce, thankfully, Bruce embraced that. And it was his idea then to take all the parts that he had imagined being for synths and use strings instead. So anytime yeah. you're listening to The Rising and you hear strings, that's because Brennan O'Brien was like, get rid of the synths, put something else in. And Bruce was like, how about strings? And so that's when they bring in Susie Tyrell. Thank Which, God! Can you imagine, like, on Counting on a Miracle, having like synths in the background going, you know, and then no. like, <laughs> or like the, the intro to Lonesome Day? Can you imagine how different? Like, it, it would not be the album that it is. It, I mean, it, it would sound like a throwback album. It, it would sound God. like. <laughs> I, I don't even like to think about it. It makes my. It oh my man. Uh, His career wouldn't have gone the same direction. I don't think it would not have been seen as a comeback. It would have been no. seen as a throwback. And yeah. I don't think that's what anybody wanted. Um, I, I certainly don't think that's what Bruce wanted, which I think is why he was so open to, to hearing Brennan's suggestions. And quite frankly, if Chuck Plotkin had stayed in the booth, these songs probably would be pretty synth-laden. And no no, yeah. no offense to Plotkin, but he and Bruce kind of had developed a relationship where he was going to defer. And Brennan O'Brien didn't need to defer. I mean, he wanted to work, work, work with Bruce Springsteen, but Pearl Jam was keeping him paid. You know, so like yeah. he, didn't need, he didn't need the work. Well, and Bruce, in seeking him out, was already saying, you know, like, I, I've lost touch with the rock sound. Yeah. So he had already admitted that he was open to, you know, learning. I mean, that's a really good point, too. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. But, like, yeah, he doesn't call Brendan O'Brien because he wants an 80s-sounding album. He he wants he wants something – he wants him to do Earthy. what he's done for Pearl Jam. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is, this is the first true E Street Band album since Born in the USA 18 years earlier. And I mean, people might argue that Tunnel of Love was technically an E Street Band album since he toured with them and they're on some of the tracks, but in the recording process, that is not an E Street Band album. And we talked about why, um, on the episode where we talked about Tunnel of Love. So, um, anyway, so the process, this is an, and I think you'll appreciate this. The the process for the recording of, of this album was Bruce would go in first with Max, Gary, and Roy. So drums, bass, and piano. And and they would go to, go in and they would lay down the foundation of each song. And then they would build everything on top of that. So so basically you got a nice bass. And and you or, yeah. you know, and so you, and then you build the rest of the song as if as if you're you're building like a house on top of it. And I think I think it really worked out 
pretty well in terms of like that structure, you know? Yeah. So oh, Brendan O'Brien structures uh, all songs to be as full as they possibly can be without being too full. For it's, sure. Uh, and yeah. And yeah, and, and we'll see that again, like when we talk about like Devils and Dust and, and the mm. Rising, or not the Rising, uh, Magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so apparently, Max, this is according to Bruce, Max had gotten a lot more confident and capable since they had last recorded. Max Weinberg, the drummer. Um, and because in the in the amount of time since Bruce broke up the East Street Band until now, Max has been playing five nights a week for Conan O'Brien on national yeah. television. With the hell of a band. Yeah, and he's not, not just that. He's been the band leader for a hell of a band. So mm. basically, he got his 10,000 hours of being a band leader between East Street Band recording sessions. And according to Bruce... Like it showed like he Max shows up with a lot of swagger and a lot of confidence and just really ready to to just step into. I mean, obviously, Bruce is going to be the boss at all times. But but I think Max took a lot of initiative and leadership where maybe he wouldn't have had he not spent the last decade leading a band every night. Oh, dude, the drums on this record are so tight. Yeah. Well, and um, apparently he was writing out detailed charts, including drum fills, and helping guide a lot of the early sessions, basically just like shaping the songs through how he was arranging the drum tracks. Yeah. And and like you said, like it sounds really – and you can hear – I mean, I didn't – I would never have known to listen for that, but like now as I listen to it, I'm like, that's so interesting. Like that the Max had such a, a guiding hand in shaping these songs just based on how he was arranging his drum parts. And in this early yeah. sort of laying laying down the foundation sorts of sessions. Well, like you think about Empty Sky, that's a that's not a big song, but it's got so much drumming in it. Yeah, it does. Uh, so good. Just the most precise little fills. Well, and uh, Mary's Place is another one. Well, I mean, we'll get mm-hmm. to, you know, like a lot of like, I, I mean, yeah, we'll talk a lot more about Max as we go. Um, also, by the way, this little Steven is back in the studio with the band for the first time in two decades. So uh, in 1983, little Steven quits the band. He leaves. They bring in Nils Lofgren to go on the tour. And this is the first time. I mean, I guess they've been touring together and playing every night. But this is the, uh, the first album where both Nils and Steven are on the same album. So it's, that's yeah, pretty man. exciting. What a like guitar playing powerhouse i know well and i mean we we know also from when we talked about darkness on the edge of town and the river that steven somehow brings a lot of life into the room as it comes as far as bruce is concerned like like bruce bruce feels looser and more energized when steven is around and so i think it's cool that he had brennan o'brien there to guide him he has he has max who's like in in the driver's seat a lot more than he, he had before he's got nils who is just like one of the greatest guitar players ever. And then he's also got his best friend, Steven in there to, to encourage him and um, kind of keep him grounded. And I, I mean, it's, it's just a perfect combination of, of people at exactly the right moment to come together yeah. and make an album like this. You know, it really is a special group, man. And it a is. special record. And, and this band has become a super group at this point. Like all these, mm-hmm. like Max has become a, a star in his own right. So is Steven, uh, because he's, he's been on the Sopranos and yeah. you know, like, so all these guys Nils has been his own, you know, has always been one of the greatest guitar players. Yeah. And, I mean, you got Clarence back in the room. Like, you've got, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it, it really is, like, we're getting the band back together. And it has. Bring in sort of, Susie. Yeah. And Patty also is, is there with him. And Yeah. Um, her first time, I think, with the on her own, right? Yeah. So, it, it's just, it's a it's a great, con- I and mean, we didn't even mention Gary and Danny Federici and Roy. Like, it's just, it's a it's a fantastic combination of people. And it's, it's cool to see them all back in the same place recording music together. So, it, it sounds like. Okay, let's see. Uh, Brennan O'Brien had a lot of really positive things to say about every member of the band. Like, he t- kind of talked about it as j- just like we just did. And I'm guessing that the unifying theme, I mean, not, not just the fact that 
like these are all great musicians, but there's also, and we haven't even talked about really the theme of the album, the idea that this, this album was built as a concept record in response to 9-11. Um, I, I think that also gave everybody kind of a sober sense of purpose, you know? And so everybody's kind of there enthusiastic about the process, but also kind of unified in what we're trying to say, you know? And that, that, that's an interesting kind of stew also, you know? Yeah. Um, so this album was met with a lot of fanfare and critical praise. The pre-release promotion was, it was by far the biggest of Bruce's entire career. In fact, they played for a full week every night on the David Letterman show, uh, just oh, a different cool. song from this record. And, and it went on to be Bruce's first number one album on the U S pop album charts. And I say pop album charts. It, it wasn't his first number one album that was born in the USA. Um, but like pop album charts didn't exist in 1984, I guess. So, um, that's, that's a new, that's a new metric. And so this was his first number one album on those charts. It also, it peaked at at number one on the U S billboard charts also, and it charted at number 34 for the year, which is low, I think, but it's still, it's pretty good for, for a comeback record like this. Anyway, we should probably talk a little bit about what this album is in terms of like, there, there's this mythological, probably apocryphal story about like Bruce is walking down the street in Manhattan after 9-11 and a guy leans out the window of a truck, I think is, is how the story goes and says like, Bruce, we need you. And that, uh, this album is sort of Bruce's like response to the proverbial guy in the truck. And I mean, who knows if that's a true story or not? Who cares? That's gotta be a true story. I, I, I'd like to think that it is, but even, even if it isn't like the spirit of it is true. Like it can be true and also not true at the same time. And that, yeah, this is absolutely Bruce responding to what he felt like was a real need that people had. Like yeah, after, after 9-11, there was this just, unprecedented amount of just devastation and despair and anger and fear and just grief that was all kind of mixing together. And Bruce is really dealing with it. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we kind of go through the record, but we probably now need to talk a little bit and we'll talk more about this in the bonus episode. I've been, I've been excited to talk to you about this actually, because we need to talk about what we mean when we talk about concept album, you know, some people will likely take issue with us referring to this as a concept album because some, for some people, like there's a purist kind of, mentality this is a concept album has to be an album that has like a unifying like it, it all sounds like one song blended together or like a like, like a broadway musical set to an album or like there's recurring characters there's choruses that come back there are um, motifs and images that get used over and over again and this doesn't really have that but it is it is it is an album that was singularly constructed to respond to one specific historic event and it's tr- it, it is trying to address one like moment in time and I think that makes it a concept album. Wh- yeah. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I agree. I think a concept album can be both musically and thematically connected or either. <clears throat> you know, I'm going to, you know, some of my favorites are are some that are just sort of one musical concept, but it's a bunch of songs. And then some are, are you know, like this big story, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned in our text messaging, you mentioned like Darkness on the Edge of Town as a concept album. And thematically, yeah. it totally is. But it kind of takes place in it's like Richard Hugo's Triggering Town book about like writing poetry. It all takes place in, in this one imagined town. Yeah. On the eastern seaboard. Well, and, yeah. And, and again, it, it, it's all it, it, there's a unifying theme. And, and I, I did find one article that, that names Wild the Innocent the Street Shuffle as a concept album because it's like it's all about life on the Jersey Shore, you know. And so. Um, and, and so you can have like these like either tighter or looser ideas. And, and again, a lot of like there are like purist quote purist types of people who would say like, no, a concept album is like like Tommy from like by the yeah. who or the who. Uh, or like a more recent example would be like American Idiot by Green Day. You know, like these are like con- like you have again characters and you have like plot points and movement and like almost like it's it's a Broadway musical just 
in album form. And like, yeah, that definitely counts as a concept album, but I don't think concept album has to be limited to just that particular kind of structure. So, and, and we'll talk a lot more about that in our bonus episode where, where we, if you're not a patron, like, Hey, guess what? We're going to spend the next pa- uh, patron episode talking about our top five favorite concept albums. Concept so hear more about that in the bonus feed. So we can move on from that if we, if we want. Yeah. What were your initial thoughts on, on this album? Like when, when you started listening to Bruce Springsteen, we all have those moments where we like, either we latch onto something earlier or we, maybe we go back to it later. Like how, like how did you sort of engage this album for the first time? I mean, you know, obviously at first I was really impressed with the, the production, like the recording, the rock and roll sound. Um, but you know, the more I listened to it, the deeper emotionally I get connected to it. You know, I was going to say like, you know, re- remembering these, those moments in time are, are very, uh, vivid to me, but I'm not special, you know, nine 11 was, was that for everybody. It's kind of like this pandemic, you know, you keep thinking I can't, uh, PJ vote always says, I, I, uh, I keep thinking, uh, I can't wait until this is over and I can tell my friends about it. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, everybody's been doing the same thing. I'm not going to be able to tell anybody about it. And so, um, that's what, you know, but this is, this taps into that. Mm. Yeah. I, I, it, it totally does. It, it, it's all, it's like a shared memory that we all have. And, and this, mm-hmm. this album is kind of a, a snapshot of, of what that memory felt like. Yeah. You know, um, how old were you when nine 11 happened? I was in seventh grade. Okay. I was a sophomore in college. So that okay. tells us all that tells everyone how much older I am than you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I I remember, uh, I, I I remember sort of like the the disbelief of it all, just sort of like the surreal. Not, I mean, like you said, like not unlike this whole thing. Like the I remember the first day that it sort of became apparent. Like, hey, maybe we should just stay home for a little while, and that was, yeah. you know, almost four months ago, and and just like the idea of like, yeah, I'll I remember I remember the last time I went to a restaurant, like you know, like it's this distant sort of thing that that we used to do a long time ago, yeah, and um. And so, yeah, it, it is like th- this album does sort of function exactly like you, you just said. So like if it makes it makes the whole thing feel very personal, but it also gives it a shared quality to like, yeah, we all kind of went through that in our own yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, aside from Lonesome Day the, and the title track, I think my initial reaction to this album was mostly disinterest. Like I, I found Bruce during the Magic album. And so this album, like I, I liked I liked a lot of like the bigger, like the rocker kind of songs. But the quiet, I, I felt like, well, partially I felt like it was just too fat. Like, I felt like there's just too much on this album. And and there were a lot no of songs way. that I just didn't initially connect with. And, I mean, as I've gotten older, and specifically, like, no, no kidding, in the last week or so, I've developed a new appreciation for this. Yeah. Um, and also, after I saw Bruce perform, um, like, some of these songs live, that that also, as we've said a million times before, that, that tends to, to raise this material it. in your estimation. So, also... Uh, after I, actually, I remember after I got fired from my job in 2013, I remember driving around and I, there were two albums that I, I, I listened to pretty much constantly in that period of time. And the one was Bob Dylan's blood on the tracks. And the other one was this. And all of a sudden, after I got fired, I found myself listening a lot harder to this album and leaning really hard into it. Yeah. And even though, again, it's very poppy and it's very glossy, I think it's easy to miss the things that make this album special if you haven't been through a crisis or you haven't sort of had th- these moments of kind of emotional reckoning, you know? Um, in fact, I, I, we've been watching a lot of Harry Potter stuff um, with my kids mm. and yeah. um, I, I, I think you're, you're pretty conversant in Harry Potter, correct? 
Absolutely. So you know the animal, the Thestral, in the Harry Potter universe, yes? Mm-hmm. So the Thestral, for for the muggles out there, uh, the Thestral is, is a winged, uh, an invisible winged horse that can only be seen by people who have seen death. So there, there is a creature that exists in the Harry, po- Harry Potter universe that a person can only see with their own eyes if they've witnessed a tragedy. That is how I feel about this album. I feel like this album is a Thestral. It is best mm-hmm. accessed from a place of pain and crisis. And because we are all going through what we're going through, I feel like this album has become more accessible in the past four months than it's ever been to anybody, you know, in, in our lifetime, since 9-11 at least. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on all that? That yes, absolutely. It and it walks this beautiful line between hope and sadness, you know. Yes, it does. Yeah, I mean, and we're gonna see that as we go through the tracks, like it, almost jarringly so. Like we're in celebration, we're in grief, we're in hope. Like, and we just we keep like kind of pinballing back and forth between these two ideas. I mean, going from empty sky to worlds apart to let's be friends is is like a sort of a you know going through all the stages of grief. Yeah. That, yeah, absolutely. Or like even later um, when it goes from you're missing to the rising to paradise, mm-hmm. you know, like that's or like Mary's place to you're missing to the rising to paradise. It's like I have whiplash because of all the places this album is trying to, to take me at once. You know, it is sort of a forced meditation on grief. Absolutely. That's a great way to put it. I think that is a great way to put it. A forced Thanks, meditation man. on grief. That's the first time I've had that thought about it. And as soon as I had that thought, I gave myself like the what up face. Like I did it. Yeah, you did. And you know what? You did it while we were recording. So now it's immortalized. So now it's real. Well, do you want to talk track by track? Oh, do I want to talk track by track? There are 15 songs on this album. So we probably, if you want to hear our like deeper thoughts on each of these songs individually, you can go back in the feed and find, we have an literally an episode for each of these songs. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of pursue it. It's like sonically and, uh, thematically in terms of like the cohesion of the whole album so all right let's just jump right into yeah. it then jb uh track one lonesome day This is a Hall of Famer. It is. Yeah, we both gave this a five, which does deservedly yeah. so. It's an excellent song. Yeah. He did this. We, we saw him do this in Dallas when we saw him on the River Tour. Yes. It was so nice. Didn't didn't he? Uh, I think so. No, he didn't. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. He uh, did it in Oklahoma City. He did Backstreet's he did instead of this. In he might have done it in, uh, he actually might have done it in Kansas City, too, the next night, my, and my buddy's. I'm thinking my buddy saw it. So. This this was in the rotation during the River Tour in the, yeah. after the the main set was over. So I, I saw him do it. I, I saw him do it uh, the first time I saw him in Dallas. That's probably what I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, man. So yeah, so th- it's a it's a great song. It's a great track one for this album. I mean, really any album. It's 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 a great like front door, and uh, I think it's definitely it's one such of such a like. Uh... If you whatever the non-military, non-intense way to say pick yourself up by your bootstraps, mm-hmm. you know, like jokes on me, but it's gonna be okay if I can just get through this lonesome day. And it's it's really just like we, I mean, we have this two shot bass. Like we have to, we have to get past today. Yeah, and we will. And then the, I mean, the rec, the the sonic quality just kicks it off. You're like, oh, okay, all right, they're here. This is not this is not you know, tracks. This is not. Uh, you know, Lucky Town and Human Touch. This is... It's here. not Tunnel this, of Love. 
yeah, this is like up of the time. It's like Bruce is a student of the times. He yes. always has been, you know, which is kind of the problem. Kind of how he lost his rock and roll core there for a little bit. But, you know, the chord progression, the drum breaks going to the chorus, you know, the half step bridge progression with the organ. It's all very great, you know. Yeah. 2002. 2002, man. It, and it, it does. Yeah. It, it is. And I, I'm, I regret the fact that in 2002, I was, like I said, I was a sophomore in college when this album came out. And I, um, I and I, I knew people who had bought it and and were recommending it and saying like it's it's great it's this nine eleven record and and I remember thinking like that is lame I am not going I'm not going to a music store and buying a Bruce Springsteen CD like that is that my parents can do that I won't be doing that and yeah. um, and man I was so wrong <laughs> you know like I. I fully prejudged this based on like what I thought a Bruce Springsteen album was supposed to be. And it wasn't until years later, five years later on the magic tour that I realized like how wrong I had been. Yeah. And, and this is like pops you right into it. It's, it's a pop song, but it's also a pop song that talks about loss and anger and revenge and war and consequences. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, Hey, we're going to deal with a lot of shit. Buckle up. Uh, we're going to keep it peppy. We're going to keep it rock and roll. And we're going to we're going to do this. This It's forced um, forced grief, medita- a forced meditation on grief. Yeah, I, I'm going to tell you this right now. When I went in someday in the future, when I'm back to like driving places in my car, I'm going to listen to this song as loud as I can. And I'm probably not going to keep my eyes dry like it is. Uh, it, this is a great like blare the song in the car, like catharsis type song. You know, I can just. Yeah, dude. I just see Caroline now being like, Rob, why do we need a convertible? And you're like, because I promised myself that I was going to last Lonesome Day on the highway. Because the neighbors need to hear it. Yeah. In my brand new convertible as soon as this thing was over. (laughs) Oh, man, my credit's going to be in the garbage when this thing is over. Nobody's selling me a convertible. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Uh, I'm just kidding. That's That's a little credit joke. So yeah, uh, Lonesome Day is it, it's a great track one side one. I think I mean if I I would never in a, in a million years try and and think of a better song to put as the opening track to this record. This is oh, and yeah. I, I can't imagine having been a Bruce Springsteen at, at being an E Street Band fan and feeling like I've been in the wilderness for 18 years and then having this album drop and then put this on and hear like this would have been the um, the amount of relief I think I would have felt. You know what I mean? If because I'm like mm. the last Bruce Springsteen album I got was Ghost of Tom Joad, which was fine, and the one before that was Human Touch and or Lucky Town, and the one before that was Tunnel of Love. I just don't know how much more I can take with my track <laughs> one side ones. And then you put this on and you're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> well, and even before like Born in the USA, you know, a bunch of diehards are like, wait, is he kind of selling out? And you know, everybody else is like, no, 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 he's not selling out. I promise, I promise, I promise. And then like 18 years later, <laughs> see, I told you guys. Yeah, vindicated. <laughs> Such a great song, man. So anyway, that's track one. Then uh, track two, Into the Fire. The sky was falling and streaked with blood. I heard you calling me. Then you disappeared into the dust. Upstairs, into the fire. Upstairs, into the fire. This is rough. This one does it, man. This one puts me, uh, uh, makes me cry. (laughs) I think (laughs) this and songs like this are what truly make this a concept album because so many songs on this record are sung from the perspective 
of either someone who died in 9-11 or someone who is like who who was was related to someone who died on 9-11 like there's a lot of very personal sounding stories that could have been just a man on the street woman on the street type story from around this time you know and this song is sung from the perspective of a firefighter running into a burning building and up the stairs into the fire fully knowing he may not come back out alive and and bruce said that while he was reading through a lot of 9-11 obituaries he said he said i kept seeing my own name and when i when i heard him say or when i read him say that i thought oh he's like survivor's guilt like he keeps imagining himself being one of the people who died but he was actually speaking literally he was saying like no in the memorials that people were writing for the people who died so many times, the person who wrote the obituary or the memorial said, and he loved, or he or she loved Bruce Springsteen. They were the biggest Bruce Springsteen fan. Like that happened over and over and over again, because these, these are people who lived in New York and New Jersey. And this is like, like the hometown that Bruce had built, you know, like this, this was his hometown crowd. And so, so many of these obituaries featured phrases like biggest Bruce Springsteen fan ever. And it really got to him. And so it affected like it was him. his duty. Yeah, and yeah, it was it affected him really deeply. And so he starts calling people personally. Okay. Like basically he would find the names of family members who had written these obituaries and he would call them personally. Who like and um and one of the people he called was a woman named Stacy Ferrelli, whose husband was a guy named Joe, who was a New York City firefighter who died in the World Trade Center. And it it sounds a lot like he probably wrote this song after having spoken to firefighters Some, widows. Someone like that, yeah. Yeah, and and I, I need to say, the reason we know stories like that is not because Bruce has ever told those stories. Bruce has never talked about this publicly. The only reason we know about these phone calls is that the people who Bruce called told everybody, just like all of us mm-hmm. would have. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. Stacey Ferrelli told her story to Time Magazine. Bruce has, to this day, as far as I know, never publicly spoken about making those phone calls because Bruce is the best person in the world. And... Yeah. Um, and he totally could have like that's that's a great story to tell but he does he felt like no i that was that was a thing i owed to to the people Mm -hmm. who died that day and um and apparently it meant like stacy ferrelli talks about how like that phone call the bruce springsteen called me to tell me that she that he was like sorry about my husband's death and that he really appreciated his service like she was like that got me through the funeral that got me through like all the like cleaning out the closets, like all the times when I was grieving, like that phone call, like remembering that Bruce Springsteen called me like that, that carried me through a lot of the worst moments. And like, what a Mitch. Yeah. The song and the stories associated with it, like just gut me and break me open and build me back up every time I listen to it. I know me too. Um, and it's very gospel infused. Like the may your strength, give us strength. May your uh, mm. love, give us love. Like that's, it's very may powerful. We like feed on each other's spirits and build off of each other's, you know, um, hope. Yeah. Um, it's a blessing. It is. That's a great way to put it. It is a blessing. Um, and that's, I I love a good blessing. Don't we all, uh, this was the first song Bruce wrote after nine 11. So it's very fresh. Like this one is very close to the bone. Uh, and also Brendan O'Brien on the hurdy gurdy. Yeah, dude. Oh dude. And the Dobro. (laughs) <laughs> the way it goes up with hope up the stairs and down, you know, with the towers. It's so like it paints a picture. It is. It really does. It is. And um, then, yeah. And then he has the audacity to go and put waiting on a sunny day next. Yes,
talk about, I mean, we're talking about like the whiplash of like all the sort of conflicting emotions. You get Lonesome Day, then Into the Fire, then Waiting on a Sunny Day, which sounds almost like overly like Pollyanna. You know, like it's a song about relentless hope. It's, this is when the audience sings back to Bruce. This is when he brings a kid up on the stage. Um, God, this song is so powerful to me right now. You know, like yeah. I, I, I go back and forth on this song. Like sometimes I feel like this song is really cheesy and trite, and then in other times I'm like, this is the best song in the world, and I need this song right now so bad. You know, and yeah, I think um, if we were to record this episode, like we both gave it fours. I think if we were to record this episode, like our single song episode of it, you know, this week, we would have given it probably fives. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I, I'm certainly feeling a lot warmer towards it. Um, according to Brennan O'Brien, Danny Federici was quote not thrilled and pretty cranky about this song uh because it's very repetitive and danny hates that like danny likes to sort of like feel his way through the song and brennan was yeah. like no just play the thing and play it again and keep playing it until i tell you to stop and danny was like ready to like punch a hole in the wall i think but he loves some like organy bump 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 you know like danny's all about a sock hop he just doesn't like to be like him dan don't don't yeah. don't put Danny in the corner. Nobody edits me. That's right. Uh, yeah, Danny was a cantankerous gent, and so he, uh, I, I, th- I think he kind of took that out on. Br- I love that Brendan O'Brien was like, yeah, he was pretty cranky <laughs> about this song. But but yeah, man. So like we've got, and I think we talked about this when we, when we did the main episode on it. But like at face value, if you only had this song, if this was the opening song, you would very easily assume. Oh, this is going to be a song about denying grief and about denying the hardness of, of all these kinds of things. But because he stacks this song between Into the Fire and Nothing Man, it tells you, like, no, he takes these things really seriously. And Waiting on a Sunny Day is not about denialism. It's about reaching for hope even when you can't find it. it it's about, it, like, when, when the room is pitch dark and you cannot find the light switch, it's, in, it's about not giving up on the fact that there still is a light switch, you know? It's about not thinking about it the whole day. You know, it's about looking forward to the first time that you don't think about your trauma the whole day. Yeah. Well, and I mean, how many times, dude, in, in the past several months have we said something or had somebody say something to us that was like, man, when this whole thing is over, I'm going to go on a road trip or go on a vacation or go go out to my favorite restaurant or go see somebody I haven't seen in you. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to give people hugs yeah. or whatever. What, what are they saying? They're saying like, there will come a day when we don't have to live under this ominous dark cloud of fear and death and despair anymore. The, and we're, we're so Twitter, anxious everybody for was, that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. That's all I'm, I was going to say is like, we're so anxious for that. Yeah, around Twitter, everybody's saying, like, I, the part, I mean, you know, once this is all cleared up and there's a vaccine, the parties are going to be incredible. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like, even Bruce has, like, posted, like, when this whole thing is over, I'm throwing a party and everybody's invited. Yeah. Like, yep. <laughs> I'll be there, Bruce. And, you know it. Yeah. Yeah, man. And, and I, and of course, I live in Texas where people have been not great about all this stuff, but like months ago, like back at the end of April or early May, I would like, <laughs> I would the, on the few times when I would leave my house, I would drive by like a restaurant or, um, or a bar, and like there would be a sign out front or like a, um, like a massage envy, and there would be a sign out front that said, "We are open. Come see us!" Like all exclamation points, big giant red letters, like celebrate, yeah. like yes, we did it. We're open, like triumphal, like we beat this thing, and I kept thinking, like you are selling. This is George W. Bush 
in front of the mission accomplished banner. Mm-hmm. Like we have not even gotten this thing going, and you're already declaring victory and pro- and proclaiming that the, cl- the the clouds have parted. And look, look, nobody wants this to be over more than I do, but mm-hmm. we cannot like. It's it's one thing to wait for a sunny day. It's another thing to lie to myself and assume that the sunny day has already arrived. You know what I mean? You know, Dim May always says you can't force the dance party. We gotta wait. Man, that's yeah. That's I, I love that. Wait. Can't force the dance party. And and that I think that's that's what this song is trying to say. The song is not saying, guess what, everybody? The sunny day has arrived. The song is saying, I'm waiting on a sunny day. It's a lament. It's still I mean, it's hopeful and it's joyful and it's it's anticipating celebration, but it's still like the waiting is the lament of it all, you know. Yeah, and then from all that sort of hope, we go straight into nothing, man. I don't remember how I felt. I never thought I'd live to read about myself in my hometown paper. How my brave young life was forever. Yeah, Bruce wrote the song in 1994. And it was meant to be about a suicidal soldier who was struggling with coming home from war, like not unlike Shut Out the Light. And it, it was it was one of the first demos that he played for for Brendan O'Brien. And uh, Bruce, Bruce was quoted as saying, "A lot of guys went, and a lot of guys came back, and a lot that came back, um, and a lot that came back weren't the same anymore." Mm-hmm. And so basically, he takes that basic idea and lays it on top of 9/11 first responders. Like he he's kind of reckoning with the fact that. Nobody knew that they were going to war when they woke up and went to work that day, but they did. Like those guys in the fire trucks and the paramedics and the police and, and even the people who like volunteered and went down and like helped like pull people out of the rubble. Like they were going into a war zone. They just didn't know it, you know. And he's sort of reckoning with like the the aftermath, the trauma of living in like in the aftermath, the survivor's guilt of it all, of, of knowing that you've you've been in that space. Yeah. But because yeah, so again, it was written as a like soldier coming home from war. But because of the concept nature of the album, we read this not as being about a soldier, but about a first responder who survived nine eleven. Right. I mean, it's survivor's guilt either way. Yeah, and, and that's that's the beauty of Bruce's songwriting is that like you can you can lift this out of the album and make it about the other thing, and it it works fine. You know. Yeah, it can be about anything. I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day, who's kind of reconnected with some old friends, and they're all kind of still off and on being hooked on drugs, and he was like super bummed out about it and i was like you have a great life though you know like you're not yeah and he just you know he was like but i feel like i did something wrong and yeah. uh yeah it's just survivor's guilt that's you know what i was just talking to somebody who goes to my church who just got a promotion at work mm, and um yeah. and she was talking about how like how guilty because she has so many friends and family members who have gotten pay cuts and laid off and just because of the nature of her work um, she like they were they they gave her a raise because of all the extra work she's doing, and she was saying like I don't know how to talk about the fact that like I'm I I actually like randomly out of just sheer luck like things went really well for me in the middle of all of this and I don't know how to talk about that right now because I feel so yeah. guilty about all the people in my life who are suffering and that's I mean that's a real fear and I I, I told her like no you you should like everybody needs a reason to celebrate right now and you have one mm-hmm. so like take it like be glad it's okay. You know, don't rub people's faces in it, obviously, but like, you know, be be happy about the fact that at the moment you have something to get excited about. That's that's a gift, you know. And yeah, and this is a song about somebody who just doesn't feel that, you know. Right. And then we go into Counting on a Miracle. It's a-
not unlike waiting on a sunny day in terms of like sort of what it's attempting to say yeah and it's right back up um i love count on a miracle man yeah in bruce's memory he says he doesn't exactly remember when he first came up with this idea but brian hyatt writes that there was an abc news report on october the 3rd 2001 so less than a month after 9-11 where a reporter was speaking to families whose family members who were still among the missing in the rubble at ground zero and the reporter asked one of the one person in the report the reporter says are you still this is the quote she says are you still counting on a miracle and the person answered you hear about them every day that's all i've got i'm going to continue looking for him until they tell me not to anymore and and the reporter's question are you counting on a miracle realizing like this person's been missing for three weeks and if like at, at like they've been buried for three weeks like even if they survived the initial blast it's unlikely that they would still be alive but just like the like yeah but there's until we have a body there's there's still that that like little glimmer of hope and that's that's sort of what the song is about um so that's going on here there's big strings in the mix very big strings uh bruce talks about how the strings here are the are, or were inspired by eleanor rigby yeah which you can totally hear he says he ripped off the beatles more in this album than he ever had before <laughs> yeah eleanor rigby man iconic song uh, very much so thrice who we're going to talk about on the patron episode uh, does a great cover of Eleanor Rigby. Ah, I've not heard that. You know, it's a great punk song, you know, Palm Mutes. So, oh, I have heard that, yes. Yeah. Uh, and also, we talked about, there's an acoustic version of this song that played as audiences were leaving during the Rising Tour. Danny Clinch, uh, the photographer, shot the video of it. Do you prefer the acoustic what? version? Uh, I think I have said that before, but I don't know if I still do. Mm. I mean, I don't know that I don't. It's good. It's not controversial to say, like, I think a lot of people feel like the acoustic version is their favorite version. I like, yeah. I like the, I like this version, but, um, I love the chorus. So it, you know, the bridge is kind of whatever mm. the strings are beautiful, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I like a... the bigness of it. Yeah. Well, and just sort of like the, the triumphal nature, which is funny. Like it's the same song, just in two different forms. And one is sort of like the, the acoustic is almost like the futility of it, like the person waiting for somebody to be found in the yeah. rubble. But the I love the, oh, go ahead. the uh, in the electric. There's like just there's so many guitars. You yeah. got one going, you know, I assume like maybe probably a little Steven going just like this a big chord. And someone else is going, you know, and then the third guitar waits a couple of bars and then comes in kind of like uh, a la we are the champions. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, not we are the champions. Or another one. Um, we will rock you. We will rock you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I love it. It's so much fun. And then like the other one comes back up into a guitar solo. So it's it, definitely cool. I like it. I think I, I like it in the mix a lot. And then yeah. track six, we've got Empty Sky. I woke up this morning. I could be. An empty impression in the bed where you used to be. I want a kiss from your lips. I want an eye for it. Which is very, very on point on this. I mean, this is like the bullseye of the theme of this whole album, right? Like, so uh, this right. was this is the final song recorded for this album. Uh, Bruce told one reporter. He, he says, it didn't, this is a quote, he says, it all didn't really hit me, hit home, I'm sorry, it all didn't really hit home until I took a ride across the bridge and there was nothing where the towers used to be. Mm. And like, yeah, that's, 
and, and I mean, I don't know about you. Like, I watch movies set in New York City that were filmed before 2001. And it's still, like, to this day, it still feels really weird to watch movies shot in New York and see towers in the skyline, you know? Yeah. The Twin Towers. Like, it's, it's. It, I mean, it really, it, it never, it never stops being weird to me every time I see it. Like, oh, wow. Like, it just shakes me a little bit every single time. And that's what the song is about. The song is about, like, the the permanent scar that 9-11 left on the New York City skyline. It will never, it will never be what it was. And that, that, that is one of the deepest like again, like scars that that were left from from that in terms of just like the geography of, of like it changed it changed the way one of the biggest cities in the world looks forever. And I think it's a kind of a precursor to his, you know, what him and Brendan are going to do next with Devils and Dust. Yeah, sonically, um, yeah, it's a good song. It's a really good song. Definitely. So again, like very much like I mean, so far all the songs we talked about have been like this is this is why this is a concept album. Like it's all responding to this one moment in time. And then yeah. uh, track seven. Concept, dude. Worlds apart. Worlds apart. This is a song right here. Yeah, it this is. This is a statement song. This could have gone wrong in so many ways. And Absolutely. The fact that it sounds as good as it does is a miracle, I think. Because I, I don't generally love when white baby boomers do world music, you know? Yes. Um, and, like, <laughs> with much much apology to Billy Joel and the River of Dreams, but uh, it just doesn't usually work that great. Paul Simon, notwithstanding, right. I do I do generally like the album, the Graceland album. But other than that, I tend to kind of cringe when, again, white white rock artists bring in like world music type sounds and try and like appropriate this kind of thing. So, but Bruce yeah. does this very tastefully. I think he brings in uh, the Pakistani singer Asif Ali Khan, and. Mm-hmm. And I think for the purposes of this song, it works really well because the song is about the chasm of misunderstanding between us and the people that we assume are our enemies. And it's about trying to understand the narratives of people that we would ordinarily deem as other. So I, I think it really, in spite of all the things that should make it not work, I think it does really work here. I don't know. what are your, It what are blends your Western and Eastern pop music and religious music. You know, it's sort of pop music, but it's also sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of gospel you know, yes. specifically, even even the uh, the Eastern um, music portion of it is, to, is specifically, you know, they're kind of gospel religious music. Well, there's a so, lot of gospel in this whole album, too. Like, that, yeah, that is a common so theme. much gospel. Yeah. Mary's Place. <laughs> uh, I mean, The Rising, the, yeah. My City of Ruins. Yeah, there's a lot. Right. Uh, a lot of resurrection uh, metaphors. But mm-hmm. yeah, man, this song is beautiful. Um, he makes a big statement. There were some people who were really brave. And I think that was one thing, you know, at the time there was plenty of sort of anti-Middle Eastern sentiment, anti-Muslim sentiment. But um, I remember people, I remember commercials um, of, you know, people saying I am American from all cultures who, who have you know come to America. And I remember, you know, uh, the president who I didn't agree with on anything at all, at least sort of handling the way he talked about. You know, trying to fight otherism a little bit, you know. I mean, and, compared to what we've got right now, he was right now for sure. Freaking Nelson Mandela. Like 
Yeah. But um, this song deals with that. It faces it. It doesn't say, like, they did us wrong. The song is about these two cultures. Yeah. And, yeah, and this album a couple of times does try and deal with what had at the the moment become kind of a a fever pitch of Islamophobia uh, as a result of 9-11. And and I'm glad Bruce deals with it. Um, There there are a couple of places, I think, I mean, we can talk about when we get to the next song, that maybe it doesn't doesn't work as well but um but but i'm glad i think here it really works well and then later when we get to paradise i, I think yeah it works paradise well. does it really well too um so so yeah he I, i'm glad he dealt with it. i'm glad he didn't just ignore it because that was such a big part of the the aftermath of 9-11 so and i i think this is the best representation of of him doing it yeah well and which brings us to track eight which is not the best representation of him doing that i've been watching you a long time Trying to figure out when when We've been moving down that same line Time is now, maybe we could get skin to skin Don't know when this chance might come again But time's got a way of coming You don't love this song? I don't. I don't like this song at all. I, I think this is the most disposable song on the album. Uh, thematically, it fills a lot of the same space as Worlds Apart, but it's just not as good. Um, it feels a little bit trite in comparison to everything else. Like, having gone all the places we've been, like, let's be friends. Like, man, we just did Worlds Apart. Like, you just kind of blew our minds a little bit, and now you're going to, can we, let's be friends. Um, he's, fact, he's forcing you to reckon with that. I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel like we already did. Yeah, or but I, also, there's a hopefulness in this song. Are you defending the song? Do you like the song? I'm on the record like in this song. I don't remember. I don't remember what your rating on this song was. Yeah, we fought about it. Oh. Just all night. All night. It's been a little while. Um, <laughs> I love this song. It's a, it's cheesy, but it's like, it's just a really nice group vocal. It's sort of another cultural blending. It's just nice. Yeah. Uh, so this was recorded before the rising sessions actually began. So to- th- this is the only song on the album that is not produced by Brennan O'Brien. Toby Scott uh, is in the booth for this one. Yeah. Uh, and and Brennan O'Brien does not like it. So Br- Brennan sides with me. In fact, I would be fine if this rec- song was off the record and it was on, you know, tracks or whatever, but yeah. Or high hopes. I like this song and, and I that- think it gives this record a hopeful up. You know, this song is like a grief sound wave. I guess I, I feel like I feel like this is the least cohesive song on the record. I, I think if you, if you had to remove yeah, you're, one, yeah. and you, you're right, you're correct. <laughs> Thank you. So, and then we've got further on. Oh, up the road. hold on. I, I this is. I, oh, I, need to, I, I need to bring this in because this is going to apply to the next two songs as well. Because, like I said, Brendan O'Brien doesn't like the song. Um, not to say he doesn't like the next two, but I, his logic here I think is useful as we go into the next couple. Uh, which is Brennan, Brennan O'Brien wanted this to be an 11 song album. He, he, mm. he really, he really fought hard to make this album shorter. He felt like it was too fat. And he, he, he said like, that's going to be, it, it will be a classic rock album. It, it will be one of like a hall of fame, great rock album. If we can pare it down from 15 to 11. And Bruce's response to that was, you're probably right, but I don't know when I'm doing this again. So we're putting them all on there. That's why there's no hidden track. That, that's why there's almost no songs from the, these sessions that are um th- that were 
omitted. Like there, there's almost no like as as opposed to like Darkness on the Edge of Town or The River or Born in the USA, where there are like you know dozens of songs that got left off. This one has almost like except for like one or two. This has almost no songs that Bruce just didn't include, because he said like I don't know when, I don't know if there will ever be another Eastry Band album again. And so he he just wanted to throw everything he could at it. I and so I, when, when I read that quote, I thought okay, now I'm gonna start looking at this album through the lens of what if it was an 11 song album? What could we lose without kind of messing up? the theme or the flow of it. And I think let's be friends. And then the next two songs are the answer. Now I like the next two songs, but yeah. I think if you wanted to make it a tighter, more cohesive album, you could probably remove the, the like let's be friends further on up the road and the fuse. And it would still basically be the album that it is trying to be. I agree with you on this song and let's, let's get to the next two and see, let's see if I agree with you on the next two. All right. So uh, track nine, which you just tried to get to. And I, <laughs> I stepped oh, sorry. Uh, further on up the road. Uh, I do love the Stone Temple Pilots guitar parts. Oh yeah, well, and that's that's courtesy Brennan O'Brien. Brennan O'Brien uh, was one was the producer on the Stone Temple Pilots album Purple. So like he's, you know, he's got yeah. a little Stone Temple Pilots flowing through his veins. Right. We got those DeLeo brother uh, amp presets. Yeah. Uh, I sonically I like it. I like kind of like the driving rock, like you said, like the Stone Temple Pilots guitar of it all. I don't think it fits on the album. I, I, I it's pretty generic. I mean, it's about hope and reunions, so tangentially it fits, but that could be said about a hundred other songs that Bruce wrote that didn't end up on this album. You know what I mean? Like He not- could have held on to this one and made um and made Devils and Dust like a little meteor. Yeah. Or I mean he could have put it on high hopes, you know, like later on. It would have made it it would have made it feel it would have made uh Devils and Dust feel kinda like an Isbel record, you know, that's like mostly pretty chill, but has a couple of like just real absolute rockers. Was it Super Eight Motel. Yeah. yeah. Oh God, I love that song. I do too. Uh, yeah. So further on up the road, it's it's a good driving song. It. I. I don't think the album needs it. I. I this is like I said. This is this is one of the subtraction songs for me. If I. If if I'm if I'm Brendan O'Brien and I'm arguing with Bruce Springsteen and I'm trying to trim some fat, I'm. Th- this one to me needs to go. What do you think? I, I fully agree with you. Yeah. And then uh, track ten is the fuse. Now like this song and th- this song is it, it really i think the song does a good job of, of dealing with the tension and the panic and the paranoia we talked about the islamophobia of it all and at, at that at the time this could have been part of the discussion about uh, about all of that about and, and reactive like pro-war posturing like the number of people i knew who were like if we're going to war i'm signing up you know what i mean like the number of people who mm-hmm. were just so ready to bomb iraq in the aftermath of this and and that is sort of what this song is about. This song is about sort of like the, the, the ratcheting up of the tension of we're angry, we're afraid, and we want to blow somebody up, you know? And 
and that that is kind of the the overall tone of, of the song. And this is the song that Brendan was like, okay, I'm not going to give you synths, but I will give you a drum pad. And I will give you a lot of reverb and echo for your voice just for one song. And Bruce was like, okay, this is the one. I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned the echo because later on, uh, Spike Lee uses the song in his movie, The 25th Hour. But they remixed this song without the echo. Not have the echo. And Brendan O'Brien <laughs> says he went to see the movie and he was, I'm quoting, he was horrified <laughs> when he saw the movie and heard that the echo had been removed. It absolutely just <laughs> devastated Brendan O'Brien to hear the song without the echo. Well, and also to like sell someone a piece of IP and then to have them change it is there was this band. I heard this story about this band that like, you know, the sort of explosions in the sky sort of band that sold some of their music to this uh, for some commercial or explainer video or something that was, you know, like on national television. But and then they just or it was like McDonald's maybe. But then they just like mashed in another the guy edited in another piece of just like um of just like uh prop music what's it called what do you, uh sound um like soundcloud music you know just like oh, that he stock, paid 30 bucks music. for stock yeah stock music yeah and they were just like what <laughs> <laughs> yeah that must be a bummer especially if you're one of the people who constructed the song and you really felt but strongly also, about how it sounded think about the guys editing the sound in that spike lee movie and spike lee's like all right this sounds great I love Bruce Springsteen, but I need you to take the echo out of that track because I cannot stand it. <laughs> or just like the tone of the scene needs it to not be in there. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm not about to like tell Spike Lee to do it differently, <laughs> but, uh, true, true, true. but yeah, true. yeah. But Brennan O'Brien apparently had, had very strong emotions about, about that event. So I, I mean, I like the song and it, it, it does, I think it does sort of capture that anger and fear and paranoia that people were feeling. But I don't know. I don't know that you need it for this album. Like again, like I, I'm glad it's here. I like the song. But if I'm Brendan O'Brien and I'm trying to like, I'm trying to cut my darlings. You know, and I'm trying, I'm trying to, to decide yeah. what, what goes. I, I feel like this one. Th- th- this is one of the songs that you could probably do without. So, in in that universe, um, Worlds Apart would be followed by Mary's Place. Yeah. You know, if if I if I had produced this album and just lifted those three out of it, and I think that makes it a re- a much tighter album. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? In like 2002, I would have thought these guitar parts were just absolutely incredible. And now to me, it sounds like um, the music, not quite the meter of the lyrics, but the music sounds like a really good sort of like Hillsong band. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know what compared just to like Hillsong, with 30 sure. with like 30 reverbs, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good song. We both gave it fours. It's really tightly produced. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I agree with you. It, it's not quite in theme with it. Though I do love like the pause at the end with the, your bittersweet taste, and then it comes back in. That's really cool. It is good. I mean, that's that is really cool. I'd be psyched. That makes me think it, it should have been like the last track on the record. No, I mean the, the last the, the my city of ruins is perfect. Oh yeah, you're you're right. You're right. All right, so let's get onto the record as you would have it with Mary's place next. I got. Pictures of Buddha, the prophets on my tongue, eleven angels of mercy sign, black hole in the sun. My heart's dark, but it's rising. I'm pulling on faith I can see from that black hole on the horizon. I hear your voice calling me. Let it
yeah, Mary's Place is, this is an essential song. This, this, this album needs this song really bad. For sure, for sure. Uh, it's a party song. It is about a vision of the afterlife in which everyone is happy and reunited. It's it's kind of akin to Waiting on a Sunny Day. It's, it sort of captures like that, that feeling of hope. Um, Brennan O'Brien says he wanted this to sound more like old school Bruce Springsteen. And that's why like the, the drums are a little bit different than they are on the rest of the album. We'll lower in the mix. Yeah. In fact, um, in the studio, Bruce was listening to how Brennan had mixed the drums here. And, he, and Bruce said like he wanted, he said, can we make the drums here sound like they do on the rest of the songs? And Brennan was like, no, <laughs> like, they need to sound like this. They need to sound like your old stuff. This needs to be a throwback. I love yeah. that that uh, Brennan had so much audacity. Audacity's good. Well, and and that's like that 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 tension. Like he like they don't have like he can't just like Bruce can't just be like I like it this way, and then have like Chuck Plotkin or whoever just be like sure you know like yeah Bre- Brennan's gonna he, he's gonna bring that Pearl Jam swagger and he's gonna he's gonna do what he's gonna do, and so like that's why like this one sounds a little more in the the Rosalita Sherry Darling kind of kind of space than yeah. than anything. And this is a, this is a Hall of Fame song right here. It should be a Hall of Fame song. It's a great song. It is. And we, uh, does this, do you ever get this confused with the bar that like Wolverine and Daredevil and Thor drink at? Uh, not that I can think. Well, I, you know the bar that I'm talking about? I don't know. Wolverine's always hanging out. There's like this bar in Brooklyn, all this like side superheroes hang out there in a bunch of the Marvel comics. Anyway, I always get that bar and this bar confused. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's seven pictures of Buddha. Yeah. I mean, no, they just think it looks like the way this feels. That's that's a that's a very celebratory way of looking at a bar where Wolverine and Deadpool hang out. It is. Wolverine, <laughs> Wolverine only drinks at the you know like the most homey sketchiest bars in town for sure. Um, but yeah, man, it it, it paints a picture of. You know, I mean, something that. Wait a second. Do you think Mary's place is nice? I mean, I, I think it's a place where everybody wants to hang out and have a party. But do you think it's nice? I don't know. I never really thought about it do in you those think terms. It's super clean. I don't think it's clean. I th- I think it is bright. I, I think it's brightly lit. Yeah, tonight, you know? but not all nights. <laughs> I don't know. I never really thought about like the the arch- architectural layout of Mary's place. Mary's place has a TV <laughs> in the corner that plays black and white movies that are silent. Yeah, Mary's place has like some tears in the le- in the vinyl on the booths. I think in Mary's place it's New Year's Eve every night. Yeah, for sure. But but you know, for the people who go there, but not necessarily for everybody. <laughs> Mary's Place is a sketchy bar that everyone loves. It's like home. It's like PH Cafe in Memphis. It seems like Mary's Place is whatever we need it to be. It's not an Applebee's. No one's saying it's an Applebee's. No one would it's want it to like, be an Applebee's. It's, yeah. No, it's like a, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like a neighborhood bar. All right. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Actually, I always thought of Mary's Place as being a t- like a, like a house, like somebody's backyard where they're like, you know, um, where they strung up some like Christmas lights and bought all the drinks in town. Maybe. I think there's like a back porch that has Christmas lights on it at Mary's place. I think that could be right. I think it's a hundred percent a bar. It's probably located somewhere in Austin. If I'm trying to find a ge- geographical location, I guess, um, who knows? Anyway, so it, it's, a, this, this is a celebratory, hopeful, song it's it's basically the idea of it is this hopeful they're in a better place maybe we'll meet again someday idea bruce is tapping into his catholicism here 
I love the let it rain chant. I love rain as like, like a cleansing yeah. flood, you know? It's just so, yeah. It's been raining so much here, and it's been so hot. and But the grass is so green, and the streets are clean, and it, everything is a little bit, you know, everything's got a dew drop on it. So everything glistens in the sun. It's there, like, there's let a it freshness rain. freshness to the rain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, man, it's a hall of fame. Like you said, it's a great song. I think the song is beloved. He, when he does this song live with the Easter band, it, it stretches into like 10 or 11 minutes. Oh, for sure. Like he, he imagine, really, really drags this one out. Imagine it's pouring rain and you're wearing a jacket and an umbrella and you're with a friend and she's like, here, duck in here. And you go down three steps and you open the door to a familiar bar and you pull your umbrella down and you look up and the lights come on and all your friends go, Hey, yeah. <laughs> That's Amiri's place. That's a nice feeling. That's a nice thought. Yeah. So we go from the highest of highs at Mary's place to the lowest of lows with track 12, You're Missing. Suits in the closet, shoes in the hall, mama's in the kitchen, baby in the hall. song is devastating. sad is a sad yeah it's i mean this is this song is about just like it is purified grief is what this song it is um or it's uh, um unfiltered grief it, it is i mean even the 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 phrase everything is everything but you're missing everything is normal but nothing is normal or nothing is everything right. is everything man it's great it's such a good movie um and i love i love again this talks about like the placement and like how he tracks this album is so well thought out. I love that it comes after Mary's place and before the rising in, in religious traditions, including the one that I'm a part of, it is easy to jump straight to, well, they're, they're in a better place. Everything is fine without acknowledging the grief that goes along with it. And at first I thought like when I first started thinking through this, I thought they should have switched the placement of this song with Mary's place. Like, no, you need to deal with the grief before you can talk about Mary's place. But now I like it better this way. Because I think yeah. if, I think if, if Bruce had switched it, it would have seemed like Mary's place was a response to this as a way of minimizing the pain associated with this with your missing. But tracked mm-hmm. this way, it's like we're living with the hope of some kind of reunion with our loved ones, but we're also having to live with the reality of the loss and that the hope does not nullify the loss, you know? Well, and I think that Mary's place is that, you know, at most that and at least avoidance. It can be for sure. I, yeah, I've certainly seen it, it act out as avoidance. You know, you wake up, you're hung over, you hung up your shirt last night, but your shoes are in the hall. Uh, you know, mom's in the kitchen, baby, and all, and you're like, "Well, this is still shit." Yeah. So, so yeah, this song, it, it's this interesting sort of, and and again, it it keeps this album from being too much about despair or too much about triumph because the structure of the album works a lot like the process of grief. We go up and we go down and it's hard to predict which one we're going to feel more or less of on any given day. Like, I don't know it's about a you. Song, like, man. Yeah. It, I mean, it, that's like, like you said, it's a meditation and, and not unlike what we're going through right now. Like, I don't know about you. Like I have a lot of days where I'm feeling kind of low about everything. And, but then oh, there are other, yeah. you know, dealing I mean, with some stuff. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm dealing with like all the stuff. Like this has really forced a lot of like stuff to just sort of bubble up to the surface. But then you have other days where you're like, I don't know. Like it's, it's kind of nice outside and my, my kids are getting along and I just, I, I just listen to some music that I really like. And so like you, you find like little rays of sunlight, 
mm -hmm. you still you're still sort of living under the cloud of all the other th the stuff that's going on. Yeah. And and sometimes sometimes it gets the best of you and sometimes it doesn't. And I feel like this album really gets it like what that's like. Yeah. You know. Which takes us into the title track, the I mean the, the crown jewel of this album, which is The Rising. Can't see nothing in front of me. Can't see nothing coming up behind. Make my way through this darkness. I can't feel nothing but this chain that binds me. Lost track of how far I've gone. How far I've gone, how high I've climbed. On my back's a 60 pound stone. On the shoulder, half mile of line. Come on up for the rising. Come on up, lay your hands in mine. Come on up for the rising. Come on up for the rising tonight. Oh man, this is such a good song. Yeah, and we broke down the lyrics very thoroughly when we talked about it uh, in our regular episode. The melody is killer. It's so good. I mean, and I defy you like to get to the la la lies and not just like feel a, feel a lift in your spirit, you know, or like the whole world has our arms around each other's shoulders. Yeah, it is. And I think that's why he wrote it that way. I think he wanted it to feel that way. Their spirits above and behind me, faces gone black, eyes burn bright. May their precious blood bind me. Lord, as I stand before your fiery light, la 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 la. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, dude, this is a um, beautiful, beautiful song about, you know, the resurrection and remembering the people you've lost and being at peace with it. And uh. yeah, well, and, and how he paints the pictures of the firework or fire, uh, the, the firefighters. And he talks about like uh, bells are ringing, or like like he talks about the sirens and the like mm -hmm. the the oxygen pack on his back, like. I bear the cross of my calling and what, what does he say about the a half mile of line where he's talking about like the, the fire hose like just like really like painting a picture of like firefighters going into certain death you know doing what they can and then lifting it li lifting us back out of that with like the, the lie lie lies and it just I mean really this song does everything that the whole album is attempting to do this song is yeah. like, th th this song is is a small um, encapsulation of the entire album remembering the loved ones you've lost like a cat like a dream that's a catfish dancing on the end of your line Ugh, so like it's good. so close but it's not there is it this is some of the best lyrics he's ever written it's so so good yeah dude, and that guitar part is just wicked good it just like if you're sitting there going i'm not gonna cry i'm not gonna cry and then the guitar part comes on you're like i'm gonna cry mm, i love this song i've seen him do this every single time Je jesse jackson's talked about this before every every time I think he does this at every show, every E Street Band show. And so I've seen him do it seven times, and it gets me every damn time. <laughs> like, and because yeah. all the house lights come up, and the whole room is singing together. I mean, it it, it is like this giant cathartic event, and um, you, you you would have to be made of stone for this to not affect you. Yeah, you know. So, so then we go to Paradise, where the river runs too bright. I take school books from your pack Plastics and wire in your kiss The breath of eternity on your lips In the crowded marketplace 
so we're back down again. <laughs> um, this is sort of of a piece with Worlds Apart. It deals with the perspective of the other. Um, and it kind of very darkly, very uh, heavy, heavily kind of gets into the mindset of a suicide bomber, mm-hmm. you know, which is not a expected place to go, you know. And yeah. um, But it also deals with the concept of an afterlife, not only Mary's place, but it, but it does it. As, well, as it's not just that it's a tough place to go. It's a very empathetic look. Yes. At a suicide bomber. Very much so. Yeah. It's a suicide bomber searching through paradise for his loved ones and possibly realizing that they're not in the same place. That this just may be it. Yeah. Well, and the the line of like I look into their eyes and they're they're as empty as paradise. And like and Bruce even responds. He says, "Really, with that, I was just trying to say that all we have is this life." And, mm-hmm. and this world and it's all we count on. And so the idea of doing anything with some like far off nebulous paradise in mind at the expense of what of, of, of life here is so self-defeating and it's so um, it's so destructive and toxic. And just like the idea, like all, all the things that we do. And I mean, this could be said of evangelicalism as a whole, like, you know, just like the idea of like, like forsaking, quality of life in the present moment because we think that when we die something good will happen for us then like it's just so misguided and so broken and and this song kind of yeah. gets at that as well yeah and then we get to the final track which is one of my favorite songs ever which is my city of ruins was a blood red circle on the cold dark talk about my city of ruins most days i do i think about it most days uh this song makes the whole album for me i mean the title track i mentioned before is perfect and i I think this is one of the greatest songs ever written i will never forget seeing him perform this in 2012 and how he framed it around the loss of friends and former band members and i mean like how he like goes into the bridge and he says are we missing anybody tonight like referring specifically about Mm -hmm. uh, danny and and clarence and then he says to the crowd he says if you're here and we're here they're here and just kind of getting at like Mm. Yeah, the loss is painful, but um, the whole thing is not about the loss. The whole thing is about like how we rise as a people and how our spirits refuse to be crushed by all of it. And um, God, it's, it's got so such good. a the piano brings you down. It reminds me of I think that Walking to Memphis is like one of the greatest songs ever written. Agreed. <laughs> you know, I lived in Memphis. Uh, it's it's like that, and whenever it. It drops down to Reverend Green, and it's this is that same chord progression, you know, like that, that so gospel chord progression. Like the second you hear it, you're in whatever that comfortable sort of weird, you know, spiritual or religious space. If you've ever had one, you go back to that, you know, whether it's like a bunch of bean bags with your youth group or like <laughs> this beautiful wooden chapel, you know, with like it's that's what I hear. And then you bring in like that kind of bluesy R and B guitar. Yeah that sort of behind the beat snare it is oh my gosh this is such a great song it's such a perfect song it is it, and it gets me every time i mean that's that's why this album like we talked about like get through this album without like getting emotional like and just tell me what that feels like because i don't know I can't, I can't do it i feel like this should be like the baseline for like if you're gonna have a religious service like does it meet this 
Well then, let's just do this instead. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I've been I've been aiming, I've been swinging for this for for years, and I I have not, not in my opinion, I don't think I've gotten there. But you fit it a couple times. Uh, thank you. <laughs> but like that, this is my like I agree. I this is this is the standard. This is the yeah. Like if if you if you can reach for this, and like touch it, then then you you found something. Um, something interesting I found. Max uh, said that he decided to add like in in the in the recording sessions, he said he decided to add a little new Orleans style drag on the snare, which mm. you can totally hear. And he, he's, so I know he, he specifically cites Levon Helm mm. and he, in, in, in citing that I found the funniest story in 1987. This is such a great story. In 1987, Levon Helm accidentally shot himself in the kneecap <laughs> because Levon Helm likes guns. And so Levon Helm accidentally shot himself in the kneecap and he asked Max oh my to play drums with him on tour. So Levon plays the top part of the drums while Max plays no. the bottom part, including like the snare and the bass. And so, uh, and so, and, hi-hat and bass. yeah, the what? Hi hat and bass. The hi hat. Sorry. Yeah. The hi hat and bass. Sorry. My bad. Um, and so, right. um, I was thinking snare cause he was, he, he did the drag on the snare. Which is funny because, like, my first thought was, like, why didn't he just, like, not play the drum? Like, why does Levon only just, like, why does he have to play the other half of the drums? Like, oh, right. Cause- or is he, like, sitting in Max's lap? Or did they have two different really weird-looking sets? <laughs> Maybe they had two different sets. That has to be it. Maybe they had two different I'm, I'm going to have to find some video from this. I don't know. But, but like, Levon Helm, like, sang a lot of the most famous songs by the band. So it's not like he could just be, like, I'm not going to go. <laughs> I just can't go on tour. Like, Levon Helm has to, like, go on tour and, and play the song. So yeah. he's... he's Indisposable, but you um, sing or indispensable. You just sing them. Yeah, just sing. Just sit on a bench. Let Max uh, play. You shot give, yourself. Give somebody like, else just your gun. Let someone else play the drums. Yeah, don't don't handle guns anymore. Shot himself in the kneecap. Um, so so anyway, Max says during that time he says I was really able to get inside of Levon's drumming style, which I, I bet you did. So mm-hmm. um, see, nice. so you're sitting in his lap. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'm trying to envision what that must have been. And so anyway, so it was out of that experience that Max was like, maybe I can make this sound a little bit like a Levon Helm kind of situation. And that's what he did. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, man. So that's the rising. Final thoughts. I mean, I cry every time I listen to it. It's a beautiful record. Uh, it takes me to a very specific place, musically and um, you know spiritually. Yeah. So, and yeah, and if it's relevant as ever, geez, man, this is, I want to live in a world where Bruce Springsteen music is a little bit less relevant. You know, I wouldn't think I would want to say that, but it is sort of the curse of like how prescient and prophetic he's been that like, as things get worse, his music means more, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, can we, can we we maybe do a little, can we try a little harder to make Bruce's music less relevant just for our own Like the, every person they put on the cover of the Madden, uh, football video game like gets hurt or has a terrible season the next year yeah and uh like that it's like so what was bruce's next record oh no (laughs) i mean oh no not that (laughs) i i have to imagine that whatever he does next is gonna be like infused with some sort of like aggravation and sorrow over just the entire trump era because we haven't gotten any like like, yeah maybe things are slowing down for a little while And they certainly have. Uh, we no one's leaving their house. Yeah, they've slowed <laughs> oh. down. That's that's one way to put it. Uh, all right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. JB, thanks so much for for talking with with me with about the rising. I need, I certainly needed to talk about this album, so this came out a good time. Yeah, you, you did. You did. I was I was sensing some 
some tension there. You, you me, and my therapist. Uh. <laughs> so, uh, if you're a patron, you can join us on the bonus episode where we're going to talk about our top five concept albums of all time. And if you're not a patron, you can jump back on the feed next week and we're going to talk about Devils and Dust. So, That's either right. way, we'll, you'll hear from us soon. And until then, we'll see you later. Mm-hmm.